Hey there, Sparkleiters, Liam here. Before we get into this episode proper, we wanted to take some time to make it clear where myself and my co-hosts, Matt and Paul, stand on a few things right now. Four days after our last episode dropped, George Floyd was murdered by police in Minneapolis, sparking protests across the world. Sadly, Mr. Floyd was just the latest victim of violence inflicted on the black community by the police, and we can't believe this is still happening, but it is. And to our black listeners, we are sorry. We know you're hurting, and we are just three white men who will never know the full extent of the pain and grief you're feeling right now. But what we can do is try our best to be good allies in the battle against racism. To our white listeners, what we'd say is that right now it's not good enough to just say, hey, I'm not racist. We need to be actively anti-racist. Protest, donate, educate yourself. I know a lot of people are scared to go out and protest right now due to the pandemic. So if you don't feel comfortable doing that, then donate. You'll be able to find information where you can donate to the Black Lives Matter campaign in the description of this episode. If you don't have enough money to do that, something really easy you can do is spend some time watching some movies made by black filmmakers where we might learn something about the black experience. Films like Black Cop, written and directed by Corey Bowles, available to watch now on Amazon Prime in the UK, Germany, Spain, Italy and France, and on Hulu over in the States. Black Cop is a fascinating and provocative movie starring the mesmerising Ronnie Rao Jr. as a cop that goes rogue, turning the tables on white civilians and his fellow officers after being horribly racially profiled by two white cops while he's off duty and out of uniform. Utilising a beautifully simple device, Corey Bowles has found a way to bring the horrors of police brutality home to those who, in reality, are usually lucky enough not to be victimised by it. So we thought it really was the perfect film to try and help promote during this time using the small platform that we have. Back in June of 2018, Matt, Paul and I were lucky enough to sit down with Ronnie Rao himself, known to Trekkies everywhere as comms officer Bryce on Star Trek Discovery, where we discussed Trek, his starring role in BET legal drama In Contempt, his acting inspirations, and of course, Black Cop. If you want to hear the full interview, it's still available on our archives, wherever you catch your podcasts. But for this episode, I just wanted to put together an edited version of the portion of the interview where we discuss Black Cop, followed by a trailer of the film before we get into the main section of today's episode. I really would hugely recommend you seek it out. So without further ado, I'll pass things over to Ronnie. Black Lives Matter. Peace. Well, that seems like a kind of perfect time to talk about Black Cop, a movie that you've starred in recently, which Matt did go and see at the Curzon Soho. Uh, it is screening in the UK. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So I managed to catch it a few weeks ago at the Canada Now uh, Film Festival in, in London. 
Thank and you for checking that out, man. I appreciate it. No worries. It was, fa- it was really fantastic. Like, it's such a powerful kind of tone perm of a movie. And it really is your movie. Like, you're on every single frame. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of play this police officer who get sort of racially profiled by a fellow officer when you're off duty and then you right. turn that power around and start basically treating um like white citizens on the streets of uh is it toronto uh, it was actually filmed in in halifax right yeah nova scotia canada yes yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah there you go <laughs> so you, yeah so you kind of turn it around on, on all these people and basically start treating them in the way that black people are often treated by white police. And just to see that kind of contrast, just flipping that around, but it's just showing a different side of how people respond to authority. What kind of drew you into to that role? And did you know about the project a lot beforehand? I, I, I didn't have a lot of notice with regards to the project, but um, I've worked with Corey Bowles before, and Corey is such a talented mm. writer, director, everything. Um, and after I read the script, I was like, yeah, I def- these are the kind of stories I want to be telling because it, it, it's a switch of perspective, yeah. right? And uh, a lot of times people don't understand what something is because they can't empathize with it. And mm-hmm. they can't empathize with it because they don't see themselves in it. And, and, and with that, um, Black Cop, it, it's a, a jarring movie, but it's a necessary movie because it's hard to, you know, we hear about things happening in places and you're like, oh yeah, that's rough. But you really don't empathize or embody it because you're like, but I, I, I don't know how it feels to have my, my home blown up. Yeah. It doesn't happen to me. So yeah, you know what I mean? So you're like, yeah, that's horrible, but you really can't, you really can't empathize and feel what it what that is and when i saw that black hop we could we could flip the script and put the the shoe flip like flip the shoe on the on the person i'm like this has to be done especially because it's such a a prevalent problem that's going on like people are being shot um, armed and Mm. and being profiled just because of how they look and i'm like you know what i mean like and even in the movie and in many times there was a, a description and it was a vague description, and you just jumped on maybe one piece of article of clothing that you could match and jumped all over it because you wanted to. Yeah, exactly, because there's, there's an amazing scene in the film where you, you approach the, uh, the sort of middle-aged, middle-class doctor, and all you, all you kind of say is, like, there's a report of a burglar in the area of someone matching your description, basically just kind of doing that thing of latching onto, like, a hoodie or, or hair colour or something really vague. And right. just seeing his response and being so outraged by it, and it's just really flipping that whole thing. But yeah, there's, there's a great line in the film as well where someone says, uh, if you claim you don't support something, challenge it. And it's definitely that attitude going into this film. Yeah, the rookie cop, uh, Sophia yeah. Walker, is the one that said that. I remember when they were in the cafe. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's the, it's the truth, you know? And, and that's exactly what Black Cop did. And I just, again, I, I really, I had to take it because I'm like, I'm okay if people don't like me because I took this role, but I just think that it's a role that people need to see, and and I enjoyed the heck out of it. Yeah, well, it's a really complex character because you're never quite sure where where you are. Like you've you have <laughs> the you have the kind of catalytic moment at the start where you get accosted by your fellow officers, but but you, you're kind of, there's shades of good and bad from the very beginning right to the very end. And yep. You know, there's moments throughout the film where it's just you addressing the audience through a fourth wall kind of monologue. I mean, they must have been so great to have as an actor on the page and to get to do. 
Oh my gosh. Again, yeah, like that's why I was like, I have to take this role just because it's, there's so much to do. Like you have, you have all of this art that you could take off the page and then turn it into something. And Mm -hmm. hopefully I did that. I, I just like to try and create whatever I'm feeling from the emotion that, that is called for it. And then just, a letter rip. Yeah, well, there's an amazing balance between kind of cinematic language here and just just realism, because so much of the film throughout the series of confrontations with the citizens is done through like dash cameras or chess cams. So it really puts you in your shoes. I, I loved Corey's choice with regards to using the different mediums of mm. uh, of that. You know what I mean? Because it really puts you in there. Like the chess cam, you're like, whoa, this is this is jarring. And and even with the uh, when he encountered the pregnant woman, you know what I mean? Like how it, that was just captured on the phone footage. It, it, I, I thought he made great choices and he was very brave in what he did. Yeah, it's like a sense of dread building up throughout because as you're going along, the, a, a number of these encounters, I don't think the character realizes he's being filmed, but we see it through the eventual phone footage or CCTV footage, and you just keep thinking in the back of your head, like, this is somehow going to come back and bite you in the, well, bite as in the to, ass. That's the kind of realism, because so many of these yeah. incidents, these flashpoints are recorded by a third party, you know, yeah. from a distance, you know, via various media, and we're getting more and more of this, but it's kind of, it definitely adds to that, like, immediacy of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's the realism of it all, but, but just knowing that, like, in this reality, you, someone someone's watching you. There's always there's always a camera rolling. Mm. Yeah, I mean certainly. I mean that's a very interesting point. I mean, you know, a movie like this is obviously very important because this problem is not going away. No, um, I swear a day doesn't go by now that we don't see another uh, video on social media of you know some poor black kid getting attacked. And the thing is, what what I can't quite fathom and understand is the fact that we're living in an age where we are our own media like you know it's it's all out there and this is or but it seems to be actually getting you know if we look back to something like rodney king it Mm -hmm. seems like that got a far bigger impact and effect than it does now and we're seeing this every day yeah and and i think i think part of that is the desensitization Mm -hmm. of it yeah is that you know you you see it so much and and just like in the film, people are always going to try and justify an action of an authority figure. Yeah, yeah. It's just become you normalized, know? and it should yeah. be something that's ever normalized. And it's amazing and, how you're using your art, though, to kind of make those points, because it does bring it into focus for somebody um, who doesn't go through this on a day-to-day basis, for example, who is white. You know, it takes something like The Handmaid's Tale for people to go, oh, that's what women are going through. Or like that, that. Yeah. It, it, no, no, sorry. I, I was just agreeing completely with what you're saying. And, and that's the thing, right? It's you cannot empathize with something unless you see yourself in it. That's why, like, you know, the whole Black Panther movement and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like, you know, it's it, it's great for young ethnic people to see that because you're like, yo, oh, wow, I, I can I can I can get to this pinnacle. You know what I mean? Yeah. Instead of instead of seeing it at, like in like these huge gaps. So um, I, I think the Rodney King thing hit more because it wasn't televised. Like you don't see this every week, someone getting beat down or, or getting shot in cold blood. You know, mm-hmm. like that, it, that was something that was, it's like, oh, whoa, 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 what? This is still happening, but it happens more often than we know. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious. Have you been able to go along to any screenings of the film or any Q&As and, and hear a conversation there or, or what people are asking Corey and yourself? Um, most definitely. Again, it, it opened a lot of people's eyes and uh, I was able to go to some smaller towns 
in, 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 in Canada and stuff like that, where the demographic wasn't hugely populated with like minorities or blacks. Mm. So for, for people to take in the movie, it's like, you know, they're like, Oh shit. Uh, okay. You know, like that's, that's really not cool, but it's, it's interesting how it, it really becomes not cool when you see yourself in it. Mm. That's the key <laughs> change that this film does by doing that reversal. I, um, yep. Also, what I found interesting, Ronnie, was the fact that obviously this is a Canadian film set in mm-hmm. Canada. Um, yep. you know, I was actually kind of quite surprised when I, I found out that was the case because you obviously naturally assume um, that this film would be set in America and that mm-hmm. would be the issues. But actually, reading about it, Canada is often very depicted as this far more enlightened, almost liberal utopia type place. <laughs> actually, this kind of seems to be shining a light on saying no that the same problems are happening here yeah like it's definitely more magnified in the u.s but i mean i've i've been profiled for like so many times i've been pulled over i've been stopped like i mean that's why i was able to be as angry as i was in the movie is because i've i've, I've lived i've lived those experiences but I, I, again, to to just go through it, it's so easy to re to relive something. Mm. So easy. And it's interesting, actually, that you mention um, the Black Panther movement. And I presume you are talking about Black Panther, the film, rather the Black Panthers <laughs> as an organization. Um, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't get me don't get me in trouble here, Leo. Don't get me in trouble here, man. <laughs> I mean, I do think it is really cool and a, a real move towards thinking that a, a filmmaker like Ryan Coogler who yep. made Fruitvale Station, which of course was about kind of, you know, the police violence yep. uh, against black people that we've seen, is now making a film like Black Panther that's had yeah. such mass penetration. Uh, it's it's amazing. Um, Ryan Coogler is, is a super talent. I loved Fruitvale Station. I was, I was bawling my eyes out when I watched that thing. Um, yeah, like it, just a powerful piece of, of truth. You know, yeah. and I, I, that's that's what I love about the arts is that we are able to tell truths in a way where it's not so abrasive for people to take in. And it's finding it, the humanity in uh, in stories that may well have just been news stories. So everything that happens in Fruitvale Station, you may have just read a headline or a bit of clickbait or something to do with it. But films like that can just get to the core of like the human interaction. And I, I swear there's a bit in that film where all Michael, Michael B. John wants is a hug from his mum at one point, And it just crushes me, you know. Yeah, <laughs> like it's. It, but that's what I loved about the film is that you know you hear about these victims, but you you also got the opportunity to see the as you said the human within the person. Right? He wasn't mm-hmm. perfect, which uh, none of us are. But he still got his life taken away because of a a bad choice. I think that's exactly it. I think filmmaking and, and cinema and storytelling can connect with us on a human level that perhaps sometimes weirdly news stories and stuff can't they pass us by but when we see it depicted uh, fictionalized as a story which is based on emotion and empathy we see the humanity in it and it it touches us and you know that has led to so many kind of changes i mean over here in the uk you know things like kathy come home uh ken loach's kathy come home and jimmy mcgovern's Mm -hmm. hillsborough got law changes and like investigations into injustices done and actually real real change happened because of fiction being depicted on screen because people found a way to connect exactly and that's the power of art 
I could give you 20 reasons why I wanted to be a cop. You've heard them all before, they're cliche. Each and every one of them. Drawn to the job, I look good in the uniform. People tell me all the time that I have lost touch with my blackness. How much are they paying you, huh? To act like a damn clown. On the contrary, I am very black. I'm an expert. You heard about the rogue officer reports today? Harassing civilians? He had a couple of teens that he was questioning. They began to call for backup when he got jumped from behind. I will keep an eye out. If you claim that you don't support something, challenge it. The respect you earn from each and every life that you touch, even if they think they don't respect you. Don't! They do. Get out! They just don't know it yet. Welcome to another edition of Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast from a non-Trekkie perspective. Uh, today we're doing another edition of Spotlight at the Movies. Uh, this is the thread of our podcast where we discuss a film featuring a member of Star Trek alumni, either in front or behind the camera. Uh, today it's very much a behind-the-camera job as it's Robert Wise, who is the Star Trek link, the director of Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, he was already a very famous prestige director uh, by the time he was hired to do that film. And this is uh, one of the movies from earlier in his career, The Day the Earth Stood Still. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Drew Pearson. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Uh, I'm joined, as usual, uh, by my co-host, Paul. Hello. And Matt. Hello. Yes, I mean, this is a wiser thon This is the furthest back we've gone in this pantheon. But in Spotlight the Movies alone, people, we have covered The Haunting, and the Andromeda strain. So do not miss out on those because we love this guy. That is just the tip of the envelope when it comes to Wise because his filmography is very, very impressive. And we are joined by returning guests, host of Easy Riders Raging Podcast. It is Chris Johnson. Hello, sir. 
Klatu Baradu Niktu to you all. <laughs> this is a lockdown podcast. Chris is very kindly recording this for us over Squadcast. Thank you for that, Chris. Uh, we are also all appearing on one of Easy Rider Raging Podcast's new episodes on 1950s movies for your Godzilla episode. Available soon. Or now, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, head over uh, to the Easy Riders Raging podcast feed right now and hear that episode uh, because you're doing a season on 1950s movies at the moment. That's correct, which is why it's good synergy with this because this is another 1950s film, another big 1950s film as well. Actually, you know, in fact, this film always intrigued me because for years it was one of the films. It was my dad had it taped on the same tape as Empire Strikes Back. But I never watched it. <laughs> or like, I think I watched a bit of it as a child and was like, uh, this is a bit boring. This cannot compare was... to Empire. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he specifically put them there as like a sci-fi double bill, but it was probably just <laughs> logistics. Like, there was an extra hour on the tape. When I started playing the film and hear the sort of iconic, dreamy Bernard Herrmann theme. A Bernard. Again, it was something I knew really well, but I didn't know it was from this even though it's super famous. It is such a fantastic, like, wibbly-wobbly B-movie score. Like, it's and it's clearly, like, everything about this film, you know, the visuals, the the design of the UFO, and, and that score is obviously a big influence on a hell of a lot of stuff, including, obviously, like, Tim Burton's Mars Attacks and these kind of throwbacks to this era of 50s B-movie sci-fi. And this must have been one of the one of the earliest coming in at 1951 and probably incredibly seminal as well. It's so interesting to consider this film... Um, with what Wise did later and the fact that he directed Star Trek The Motion Picture. Because when we watched the Andromeda strain for a different episode, we very much said that the kind of the style that he used for that in relation to sci-fi being very grounded in kind of science and also mm. quite boring. Uh, it's kind of, you know, what he kind of took over. Called? Oh, yes, yeah, boring. <laughs> well, he, he, does, he, does, he does grown up sci fi. He does yeah, it's, it's very, very yeah, hard SF. And that's what he took over to Star Trek the motion picture. But I would imagine when Paramount hired him that actually they were thinking more about something like the day the earth stood still because actually a lot of the political angle mm. that the day the earth still explores it definitely has links to gene roddenberry's own visions of the future i found it like incredibly relevant to today's political climate more than anything as well so it really is a timeless film it is kind of like gunboat diplomacy uh, by aliens a bit like the federation it's like really you know we are here to enforce like utopia but we have a massive great armada to back ourselves up, you know, and in this case, it's like, you know, a race of robots have been created and given complete control over the beings that created them to say, you know, if we ever step out of line, you have permission to destroy us. Well, yeah, I should explain uh, for anyone who hasn't seen The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, the basic plot line is alien spaceship arrives on Earth and Klaatu is the main ambassador uh, from another world who kind of comes out with his robot sidekick, Gort, and he's immediately, as soon as he turns up on Earth, shot by the government, but he then escapes hospital, disguises himself as a normal human being who then tries to basically research uh, humanity and isn't very impressed with what he sees. Understandably so. I mean, the film is basically Plan 9 from Outer Space, if that film wasn't insane. 
They both got the the same conceit of humanity's got to change its ways, not create a deadly mega weapon or else. I've never seen Plan 9, you know. You've seen it, haven't you, man? Yeah, it is It is bonkers. But I did see it, and it is kind of that admirable, admirable kind of one-star failure where... You know, as, as we see in, in Ed Wood, of course, like it's, it's it's a passion piece, something akin to you know the room of its day, as it's very much referred to. So it's not cynical at all, but it is just a very <laughs> poorly executed uh, piece of work. But it's worth it's worth checking out, especially in light of a film like this. Well, you can see it on YouTube for free because we did it on the podcast quite That's recently. Probably where I saw it. Would you say it's a misunderstood classic, Chris? No. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. It, it, it is a bad film. It's, it's, okay. It's, you, you, you don't get the same level of laughs that you'll get out of the room mm, or no. I know who killed me or something like that. Uh, okay, so not It is a really good companion film to watch if you're doing Ed Wood as mm. well i think i think that's why i rewatched yeah. it because i did not wood again so to see how closely they got to certain scenes and behind the scenes stuff and it is I mean, you know it makes you appreciate ed wood even more you know and that's but, a great film anyway so well and it made me appreciate this more considering i could yeah. see i could see they were trying to do a very similar idea but this is just done so elegantly mm. like there's a there's a touch of class to this production it's well it's isn't this the era of twilight zone sort of first appeared on tv as well matt mm. well i was thinking yeah it's a few years before it kind of predates it but it is very much a twilight zone kind of story in in its presentation in its style in the way the story unfolds in the characters and dialogue just everything kind of in the writing of it feels extremely twilight zone and um i haven't checked it out but i imagine you know i wonder if the writer of this did end up doing any twilight zones because obviously rod serling kind of you know employed a lot of prominent sci-fi writers of the time to pen uh, episodes of Twilight Zones. Well, the, the few that he didn't do himself because he did so, so bloody many. But a lot of the early ones, I think the season one episodes get farmed out to a few really good people. And this certainly feels like the lost kind of Twilight Zone movie before the Twilight Zone. On that same point, like this, the 50 seems like the best era for allegorical sci-fi. We've just done Godzilla, which is like, you know, the nuclear proliferation. This is again, that same kind of thing again. This era is filled with classics like them with the giant ants that's atomic energy we've got the red menace in films like the thing that came from out of space where it's like you don't know who the enemy is they're among us and the blob even invasion of the body snatchers the original because yeah, of course yeah. chris the last time uh you came on was for invasion of the body snatchers the 1978 remake of that which is very good but i uh, the original is also uh, extremely good as well and definitely worth watching i mean uh, this is this is lean and mean it's, it's only 90 minutes i definitely don't think it outstays its welcome at all and it, it's an interesting film in a lot of ways because quite a lot of time I thought it came across as a bit of a PSA almost <laughs> or like a series of look and read. Did you ever watch <laughs> look and read? No. So look and read. They used to show it in schools a lot. Certain series were Badger Girl. Oh, Badger <laughs> Girl. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Oh, come on. Chris remembers Badger Girl. Look, it wasn't on your Pornhub history. All right. <laughs> 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 but they did a series in 1994 called Earth Warp, which was about an alien coming to Earth to kind of stop pollution on this beach. And, and that's what it kept making me think of. It's our planet, it's our planet. 
That there's this uh, horrible big business capitalist guy who's kind of you know, pumping loads of pollution into the ocean, and in the finale of uh, Earthfall, he has a change of heart, and there's a big moment where he kind of goes and stands on like the the, the pier and sees all the pollution kind of pumping into the ocean. And, no! <laughs> oh, great stuff, Earthfall! Uh, he, you know, repeated many times because you know it's it's, it's several stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you're right this film can occasionally feel like it's sort of 80 percent message but the message is so yes. strong it can carry the story that the story can rest on the shoulders of this allegory because it is so tied into every element of it so i think it works because i think i think there are definitely sort of message films out there that just become lost but this doesn't sacrifice style or entertainment or anything like that really it's just it's just slow paced I think the writers also felt that actually they were being really subtle, uh, but you know we can sort of <laughs> kind of see it very clearly, like the uh, the Christ analogies, like even his like uh, initials, JC, Mr. Carpenter, Carpenter, like, yeah, form, and also Carpenter itself was like. <laughs> I, I thought I was really clever when I noticed that and looked at the Wikipedia <laughs> page, and it was like there were all these different ones. I was like, okay, maybe I'm not that clever. <laughs> <laughs> I should say that this was written by Edmund H. North. The other big thing that he wrote, I, I didn't check if he'd written any Twilight Zone episodes, Matt, I must ah. admit, but he did write the screenplay of Patton uh, with Francis Ford Coppola, uh, which is obviously a, a very prestige film. Right. Has anyone seen Patton? Oh, yeah, it's great. No. Like, have you not seen it? George C. Scott? No, no, no I've no. seen it. Great score by Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, I Goldsmith. Well, there's another Star Trek connection. It's three hours long. He writes 17 minutes of material, and some of his better film, better scores are where he writes very little for them. So it's, it's iconic, the score, and an amazing opening sequence. I want you to remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. All this stuff you've heard about America not wanting to fight, wanting to stay out of the war, is a lot of horse dung. Americans traditionally love to fight. All real Americans love the sting of battle. When you were kids, you all admired the champion marble shooter, the fastest runner, big league ball players, the toughest boxers. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. Because the very thought of losing is hateful to Americans based on a short story called Farewell to the Master by a guy called Harry Bates, who wrote for kind of pulp and sci-fi magazines. Uh, so, you know, I presume that this was just a short story published in a kind of, you know, pulpy sci-fi magazine of its time and then kind of adapted into a film. And it does, it does feel like that. There's a, there's a big message uh, to the movie, a very, very strong message, which still resonates today. I mean, 
you know, it's that thing. We, we didn't learn anything from this, basically. But it does have that pulp sci-fi B-movie feel. Like, even just the, the actual flying saucer itself, the look of that, and Gort, the robot, uh, there's all these big pulpy B-movie trappings over what is actually mm. quite a serious story, message movie. It's that, it's that amazing thing where the effects can be simultaneously, you know, cheesy as hell, but also really effective. Because obviously it is just kind of like a rubber suit for the robot. But when you look at it, like it's kind of got this alien-like smoothness to it anyway. Like except for when he walks and his knees bend and you can see the creases in the rubber. Like other than that, it doesn't just look like a rubber thing. It, lo- it looks otherworldly itself. So it may not be the desired effect. I mean, if they're trying to make us believe he's a man made of metal, that's not really working. But it is odd enough that it feels different and that's still having the same effect he's got this sort of visor thing that just kind of drops down and then as soon as it does kind of beam of kind of mm. death ray or whatever it comes out and there, there's something very ominous about it and sinister and yeah i actually think that that look that helm is super iconic yeah and still and they pay that off later on as well because when you when you realize oh when the visor opens and he fires a laser when it comes to later on when he's kind of going ape shit it's like when you see that visor going you're you're queued up to know what's coming and it's like oh shit and you're right i think the the design of the laser inside the 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 visor is going to be the inspiration for the cylons in battlestar like that kind of oh yeah big time yeah 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 Mm. I just like the, the critique of the, the US because, like I said, it, he lands and within seconds they shoot him. Like, seconds. Mm. Really, it shouldn't have gone to America. Yeah. It should have gone to New Zealand, <laughs> Amsterdam, or even <laughs> bloody Bentner on the Isle of Wight. Not America. They're going to shoot you. It reminded me of uh, Night of the Living Dead, the ending of that. Yeah. It's just that shoot first mentality, isn't it? That's so depressing. And then he gets shot again later. And <laughs> second, I, second time's in the back, which is in not the a back. great look. Yeah, yeah. And at the end, to be honest, uh, was I the only one who thought when he was doing his big speech at the end and everyone's going around, I just thought they were just going to shoot him again. I was surprised they're letting him speak. I just thought some like redneck <laughs> was just going to grab a gun and blow him away all over again. I mean, you said that they shot him, but they did take him to hospital and give him health, some medical aid, which they yeah, did without he insurance. Bill yet. So fair, fair play. <laughs> yeah. No one, I was expecting to see them just kick him back out of an ambulance. I mean, to be honest, I think they were looking at his flying saucer and going, this guy's got a few bob. He's <laughs> got. Yeah, so you've got to mortgage your death robot. <laughs> I mean, is that the real reason he escaped from hospital? Just to basically run out on the bill, essentially. As we are That's why they shot him. <laughs> well, I, I think he needed to escape. He needed to escape a hospital because they were proper idiots. Like the yes. doctor's like, he says, he says to him, he says, oh, he's 78. And he's like, I can't believe it. And it's like, he's fucking from space. What do you think? <laughs> he's not from bloody South Sea. He's an alien. Of course, he's going to be different. He's healing like Wolverine. Don't, don't expect him to play <laughs> by the same body rules as you. He's an alien. Yeah, no, it made me think of the uh, the Doctor Who 1996 TV movie where Sylvester McCoy's Doctor gets like blown away uh, by like a, a million bullets and then gets rushed to hospital. And while he's in surgery, he kind of leaps up and says like, oh no, my like physiology is different from yours. Basically, don't do anything. And they're like, nah, give him some fucking anesthetic or whatever. And like basically kill him through giving him like the wrong medicine. Obviously the same could have happened here. 
yeah i think that's the thing that's like handled so much better in like et you mm. cast real like paramedics like playing those things resuscitating et and the way they speak to each other and interact with the equipment you know mm. that it adds to the reality of that scene and it's just obviously heartbreaking of course uh when you know et dies in that bit it just like you know um the flatline in the way they react that's just a sign of the times this film was made you know they weren't quite at that level thinking about how to convey the realism i mean i've not seen the, the 2008 remake to like compare like how a modern take would, would would play those scenes if it does indeed follow it closely has anybody seen the remake i, I watched it for this because i uh, saw it, it when it, it came it out and i can't really remember it so <laughs> yeah i watched it specifically um for this after is, isn't got like a giant robot in it isn't he really big uh, he's got a, he, yeah he's giant he's got a similar design Clavio Davison obviously CG um, in that they do actually have a scene where they're do, performing surgery on him with the doctor commenting on the differences and saying well I'm going to use this kind of medicine instead of this kind of medicine in case he reacts against it and stuff like that so they do kind of go into that a little bit more in the remake mm. yeah is it the best thing about the remake uh i mean it's one of those things where i I don't think it's i don't think it's truly awful it's just kind of completely it's one of those just completely redundant films where you know it's, it's not insanely bad but it's it's not needed and the message really i would say is is slightly different i'd say that the remake lets humanity off the hook a lot more the idea of, you know, the message we're given at the end of this original film is basically, well, you know, we came here to study humanity. You're all wankers. And if you don't fix your ways, we're going to come back and completely destroy you. Klaatu, uh kind of says everyone else in the universe is sorted. We're not we're not perfect, but we are basically we are at peace. You're the it's, only it's one like- fucking up. It's like everyone talking to the US and the UK about the coronavirus right yeah. now. <laughs> I, I, tell you, I tell you what it is. It's the uh, it's the end of the world's end with Simon Pegg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Obviously, is they it, get uh, the, the option to kind of join the, the network, as it were, and be better people. And because we're drunk idiots, we're like, no, screw you. We like being shit. And it's like, it's kind of a <laughs> flip inverse where the higher authority is maybe a bit more... Uh, authoritative over everything and maybe it's not for the best like this is could be a bad thing individuality is good being able to make mistakes is good like that's kind of the message of the world's end whereas here it's very much like yeah you will be a danger to yourselves well you can be a danger to yourselves what do we care but the more you grow you'll be a danger to us and we can't allow that so join us or or that's it and and yeah the way the way the way he threats to like just blow us up you know he's got a death star somewhere he's like we've we have the ability I just want to go yeah. back to that 2008 thing. It's just like, think of the time that was made. That was just before the bubble burst. It was the good old days where people were like living on credit. It would look like a big boom times. You know, we've got films like The Good Year being made where the, the lead <laughs> character is in a romantic comedy is a banker. Uh, like in 2006, you know, Russell Crowe is like, today is greedy bastard day. Yay! I just, like, I, it's, it's amazing to have that kind of set then because it's actually almost a time capsule in itself now, the 2008 movie. So, sidebar. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the good year recommended. Well done today, Lab Rats. We all made a spectacular amount of money. Burn in hell, rot in hell. Congratulations, you're my hero. Who said that? Lawyer. Oh, Henry, bloody hell. 
Your uncle Henry hasn't updated his will in over 20 years. So you get everything. The old farmhouse and the vineyard and the grapes and everything. I'm the pool man. It's just routine maintenance. Her name is Fanny Chanel. Why are you trying to seduce me, Max? Thought would never even cross my mind. I'm more than six or ten times. You're selling La Siroc? This place just doesn't suit my life. It is your life that doesn't suit this place. Once you find something good, Max, you have to take care of it. You have to let it grow. Max Skinner doesn't take holidays. Max Skinner makes money. What's it to be? The money or your life? This film really does, you know, it's the best of what sci-fi can do as a genre. You know, it turns the spotlight back on us and our behaviors from the POV and judgment of uh, an, the ultimate neutral party. You know, it's an alien invasion film from the perspective of the alien, which I can't imagine was something that had been done much back then. And, you know, all these themes of like anti-violence, it's very critical of uh, our hostility towards outsiders and immigrants, for one, hence the shooting on sight, uh, our paranoia, our prejudice, our xenophobia, all these things. And what it kind of all comes down to is like, you know, which is why it's so relevant still now is it's saying, you know, you've got to understand that giving up certain freedoms isn't a bad thing if it's for the greater good. And that's what comes down to all these COVID protesters. You know, they're all going like, well, why should I not go and get a haircut? Because it inflicts on my liberty. It's like, no, doing this one thing isn't affecting your ability to live. It's for the greater good, you know, and so this speech at the end, you know, which we'll, you know, we'll get we'll get around to it's it's really is. Like, I heard it with fresh ears. It's the way Chaplin's speech at the end of The Great Dictator is still insanely relevant. Like, it's it's these core human flaws that we're unable to get past. And I think I think Paul's right. I think 2008 was the wrong time for a remake. I think kind of now is the time. But we can't get anything made because we've got to stay fucking six feet apart. So... <laughs> The thing that saddens me, really, is that a remake is even needed. This came out in 1951. And the message of the film is very clear. And like I say, mm. like no one learned fucking anything from this. It resonates as hard today as it did then. All the messages that Klaatu is trying to impart to humanity in this film, he could just arrive today and impart, and it would be exactly the same. Um, but what is interesting, I think, is the idea that this film purports of, it, it's not saying that the rest of the universe and um, Katu's own species are such a peaceful, perfect people. It's mm. not saying that. It's saying that we realised that system. we are, by nature, violent and aggressive people, and therefore we created these robots to essentially police us and keep us in check. And they have all authority, and if we do anything, they're going to fucking kill us. So it basically, it, it's essentially, what they're saying is kind of capital punishment works, is what they're saying. <laughs> because you've got to assume that on, on their planet, if someone just starts having a bar fight or something, Gork just suddenly appears and fucking death raise them. I found that fascinating if you compare it with Gene Roddenberry's own vision of Star Trek, because on a surface level, this is quite a lot of lot in common um, with his kind of philosophy in the sense of these people from the future turning round and saying, you know, war um, is a bad thing. We need to stop that because obviously in Star Trek, war is essentially a thing of the past until we get 
onto things like Deep Space Nine and stuff like that. And very much the next generation, Gene Roddenberry's big thing of that, which infuriated all the writers, was complete non-conflict, no conflict between people whatsoever. But the idea is that we've just evolved beyond that that conflict is a kind of you know a base thing and these people are now beyond conflict and that's why everyone just kind of acts slightly certainly in the first couple of seasons of tng like pod people themselves in a way where they're never gonna kind of fall out or anything like that whereas you know what this is saying is actually no everyone is still festering all those feelings deep inside everyone does want to kick the fuck out of everyone still but it's just that they're too scared not to because Gort's yeah. going to fucking blow them away. So some of the tension in this film like maybe suffers today because it feels a bit slower. Perhaps it is lacking kind of uh, a bit of impetus. The, sort of the noose closing in on Platu uh, is that, you know, he's on the loose uh, and the government is, uh, you know, wants to kind of recapture him um, as, of course, he is so important. You know, he's an alien visitor. But we've got like the douchebag sort of boyfriend that kind of adds the tension where he's like, you know, looking for a quick, quick buck like here and potentially will shop into the police well i guess it's more of the the jesus analogy maybe he's the the judas perhaps you you just felt that really he was just annoyed that the guy was hanging around his his girl didn't you that that was his big reason he was an idiot really because this guy's got diamonds he's giving out for nothing he's like (laughs) yeah oh that little kid's got more brains than that guy because that little kid cons the fuck out of him doesn't he He just goes like oh yeah give me a couple of diamonds for these like was he giving like two quid or something and and he actually says he says oh my mum like taught me it's wrong to like steal from people yeah i think that i think that kid he's maybe that element of him that relationship it's very sweet but it's maybe the thing that's dated the most in, in terms of the 50s things because that kid is very precocious 50s kid like if you did that element of the storyline now no kid would would act that nice to a an adult <laughs> <laughs> well also yeah. his mum looks like a terrible human being she leaves her son with a stranger that she's just met <laughs> I think it's so she can go on a date as well. It's not even so yeah. urgent. It, she literally is going to go out with with her boyfriend, and he just turns up and goes, "Oh, I'd be happy to look after him." And yeah. she's like, oh, oh, yeah. "I've never met you before, but it's, it's fine. Take, take my kids." Yeah. She should have been like, "No, thank you, Jimmy Savile." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If this was made today, we'd everyone would just be thinking, "Pedo, pedo, pedo." <laughs> oh, that's that's when he's hanging out so much. Like, shoot the pedo, shoot the pedo. I, oh, especially I when he's bribing him with diamonds. Another great sci-fi movie where they have like the alien sort of take human form is Starman, and I think you know Jeff Bridges yeah. brings such otherworldliness to that performance. But he kind of help can't help but fall in love with him. Like you know, you'll get to see it through Karen Allen's eyes in that movie. They're on a journey together. I think that's what this film is missing because you can't really relate to like the precocious kid that sort of acts like no mm. child I've ever met, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and these characters who like you know are, are not even the slightest bit worried they're leaving them this child with a complete stranger. It's like there's nothing really to kind of like connect with there yeah. in the same way uh, you know the star man would i guess you connect with helen a bit when she gets clued up to the situation she becomes yeah of a relatable figure once she gets her act together if we were on chris's podcast paul where he has a feature called companion piece where you pick a film that would kind of partner well with this movie would star man be your pick oh 100 yeah we rewatched star man recently didn't we yeah, it was, it, was, it was so good. Jeff Bridges is just a phenomenal in that film, isn't he? 
And it's so funny. Yeah, incredible physical performance as well. In 1977, Voyager 2 was launched into space to the outermost regions of the universe. It carried an invitation in all languages for alien life forms to visit our planet. Someone, somewhere, listened and accepted our invitation. Get ready. Someone is coming. Someone like no one she has ever known before. Can you clone a living organism from the hair of a dead man? We're hypothesizing a technology that's probably 100,000 years ahead of us. He has powers we cannot imagine, and the face and touch of the man she loved. Oh, God. I send greetings. What's the matter with you? How much English do you understand? I understand greetings in 54 planet Earth languages. Do you seriously expect me to tell the president that an alien has landed, assumed the identity of a dead house painter, and is presently out tooling around the countryside in a hopped up 1977 Mustang? You're not from around here, are you? Think of what it would mean to talk to a being from a civilization like that. Think of what we could learn. Understand there isn't much time, please. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. Can't you just leave him alone? What the hell ever happened to good manners? We invited him here. So far to come. So much to do. So little time to fall in love. Look up. Company's coming. John Carpenter's Starman. This is so ahead of its time in many ways. Uh, as we were saying, you know, a lot of these messages are as resonant today um, as they were then. And there is a moment where uh, Klaatu uh, is speaking to a journalist who's going, a reporter who's going around getting quotes from people for the radio. He starts talking about humanity using fear over reason and such. And the media essentially silence him. The reporter is like, oh, yeah, sure, pal. Like, yeah, like goes off. And I was like, wow, that's amazing, 1951. And basically, you know, what it's saying is, yeah, the, the media don't want to hear the truth. They just um, want the puff piece uh, part, right? Well, yeah, and they want to deliver a different... That doesn't fit in line mm. with the kind of general capitalist message and stuff that they would be looking to push. And I found that fascinating that they were doing that at that time. Obviously, you've got the, the super relevant to today's stuff is the, the city under lockdown. Yes. Like, like Britain... Washington DC takes way too long to lock down. <laughs> There's some really great cinematography in this, and I love the way they shoot Klaatu, because even though he is a humanoid-looking guy, he does still have a quite alien bit about him. And when he first shows up in that woman's house, he's kind of in the shadows, like in the doorway. Oh, yeah, beautiful. And there's that amazing shot of like, yeah, him in him in the shadows, and then he kind of steps forward into the light. And it's that kind of uh really stark black and white cinematography from this era that's really stands out and everything with him like you you definitely believe it's a very it's a very convincing performance as well yeah he's he's really good this is michael rennie uh who's in the lead of this who was a famous kind of sci-fi b-movie actor yeah he is really good he reminded me a bit of kirk douglas in this yeah and of course he's weirdly become most famous for being some of the opening lines to the Rocky Horror Show. 
because ah. the opening song to the Rocky Horror Show, science fiction double feature, the opening lyric is Michael Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still. <laughs> um, so any Rocky Horror fans will, will know that well. And I remember seeing that. I, I saw Rocky Horror before I saw the day the earth stood still. So I was just like, who's Michael Rennie? What's that even mean? When I heard Rennie, I thought of Rennie, the kind of like, what was it, a stomach stomach pill or whatever. It wasn't until years later that I saw this and realised the connection. Yeah, I think one of the things that his performance gets really right compared to the remake is in the remake in casting Reeves, I think they went for quite the blank alienness because Keanu Reeves at that time, now he's beloved again. But in the late noughties, people were kind of like, he's just a plank, he can't act, he's really wooden. And I think they cast that element of him to play a kind of blank, thing pretending to be human but Rennie in this really there's a lot of warmth to him even though he's an alien he doesn't act like an alien he doesn't understand earth per se but he does kind of understand emotion and empathy and compassion and stuff and when he's hanging out with a kid it doesn't feel like malicious at all it doesn't feel like he's using him to get his intel it does kind of feel like he's just hanging out with this kid in a genuinely warm way in a way that even the kids parents aren't even doing he bridges that gap between between those elements really well he does have that vibe that he's a bit above everything yeah he's yeah. a bit like a sort of scandinavian exchange student who's just looking down <sighs> on this shitty country but yeah. I mean, fair enough like, to him really but children are like innocent i think in all cultures aren't they i think that's what has been that you know unites humanity mm. is that children are, are the innocent and i think there's expressed outrage whenever children are hurt as a result of anything that adults, you know, do to one another. You know, the only thing that got anybody caring at all about the migrant crisis was children being carried out of the sea. So you've got like Michael Rennie inter- you know, interacting with a child, like, and you know, trying to learn it almost like this child's not going to try and deceive me other than to steal my diamonds, but they're going to give me the whole, <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> you know, whole unvarnished kind of perspective on humanity and. So it's kind of like a good way in. Trying yeah, to it makes sense. What better way than to yeah, yeah than to follow this kid around? Because yeah, kid ain't gonna sugarcoat anything. He's gonna tell it how it is. But yeah, you know, it's funny um, about Keanu Reeves. I haven't seen it recently. I do agree that he's very different from Michael Rennie in this, and uh, Rennie has a lot more warmth to him, and uh, Reeves he plays it as more uh, colder. He plays it as colder. I would say. Um, but I do like him in the remake. I do think he's good. I just think they're aiming for something different. Because trailer, uh, he's heavily featured as like the warning, isn't he? It's like, you know, you're all going to die. Like, yes. Because like, I remember that film being promoted the hell out of it. Trailers, TV spots. And uh, and that was always featured. Reeves' cold delivery of that lines in, you know, in interrogation or something like that, isn't it? What were you? before you were human. It would only frighten you. We're getting images of these spheres from all over the world. Are you aware of an impending attack on planet Earth? Yes. Why have you come to our planet? Your planet. I need to know what's happening. If the human race dies, the Earth survives. We can change. The decision is made. You could stop this if you wanted to. The process has begun. Okay. I think it rightfully uh, flopped, really, because although I think you could potentially make that film again now and it's as relevant today as it was then, the thing is always, with my opinion, 
with these things will always be just watch the original in general. But I, I do understand that, you know, a lot of people aren't going to be able to kind of engage as well with the 1951 um, version. And, you know, I think if you do it well enough, you could do a remake now, but it wasn't wasn't the version they were putting out. It was too saddled to just being a big spectacle blockbuster, which the original very much isn't. It, you know, it, it's pre all that. It, it's not, it, there's there's a pulpiness to it, um, but, you know, it's, it's a character piece at the end of the day. You know, yeah. like the majority yeah. of the film is, is the guy just wandering about talking to people. So, which... It's, it's hard to sell cerebral sci-fi on the big screen these days. Yes. People yeah. hear sci-fi, they expect spectacle. But this this uh, this story doesn't require spectacle on that level. Mm, yeah, so, yeah. I'd be interested to see if they did remake it again, doing it on a small scale, like a low budget, like like Chris on the, on our guest episode on Godzilla. You mentioned a film Colossal, which is kind of you know a very small indie way of tackling a kaiju film. Like imagine someone doing a kind of small scale character indie. That happens to involve an alien coming in, and, and I think that like could be Alex a way of Garland doing it. Or someone like that. Yeah, I think he could do something because he's full of cerebral ideas. And you know, I've just mm. finished watching his new show, Devs, and that, if anything, feels a little stretched out for eight episodes because it is kind of sixty percent idea and concept over story and character, which a lot of this film feels like as well. Okay, so uh, we should probably move towards wrap up. Uh, Paul gave us a companion piece to this film, Starman. Uh, Matt, do you have anything that you'd like to pair this with? Uh, yeah, I'd throw in something like Arrival. Uh, Denis oh, Villeneuve's yeah. film okay. from 20, yeah. 2016. Mm, yeah, because that's, again, an alien force coming to, you know, gift us something like not not so much a warning but a, a but a helping hand and in you know and seeing how governments and military and individuals misunderstand intention that's all in there and it's uh yeah gorgeous film chris have you got anything well i mentioned plan nine from outer space earlier so i think that would be my companion but i just wanted to underline um because we didn't really come back to it because at the end he does his his big talk which i believe is to scientists of the world yeah, thinking, I guess so, but there's loads of people I'm thinking, about. you can tell these scientists anything because clearly people don't listen to scientists. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe I'm cynical, but as well, like, I came away thinking 10 minutes later, everyone was just going to go, fuck it, should we just do what we want? He said he said his message and everyone listened, but you know that they're not going to take yeah. it in. Mm. And they you did know, like, Well, we, we don't know what happens in, in the world of this film after the <laughs> yeah, credits. Yeah, so I say, yeah. But, I felt convinced they were fucked. You almost have to believe okay. that the the people of this film in the fifties would at least do more than the people around it today. Maybe I don't know. Well, they couldn't do less than today. No, but well, I mean, actually, I mean, you're right, Chris, because part part of that speech at the end, I've got a bit here. You know, he says the universe grows smaller every day, and the threat of aggression by any group anywhere can no longer be tolerated. There must be security for all, or no one is secure. This does not mean giving up any freedom except the freedom to act irresponsibly. And you're right, like whether people can can listen to that and act on it is kind of the lingering question that the film leaves and one that I'm still kind of thinking about now if I was picturing this speech being given to a crowd full of 2020 uh, civilians, you know, or scientists. Well, I mean... He's it's a really, really sensible, thought-out um, message, but you just know there's a certain percentage of society will just rebel against it, mm. whatever, just out of general principle. 
well, think even though it makes perfect sense it would be aimed at world leaders not scientists because the scientists could be usually counted upon to yeah. have the, the, the the voice of reason in these times but it's uh yeah it's more world leaders and you know isolationism and and putting countries first that kind of like behavior is what's going to like get us all killed well yeah i mean he's if you listen to his words he's essentially preaching a kind of socialism isn't he which we know even now like people you know will not get on board with people are terrified of anything that's kind of away from the general capitalist ideal um so i mean you know if anything i think rather than a remake they should make a sequel now and have a classic return and be like all right guys i gave you fucking 60 years you're still shit yeah. we're fucking killing all of you and then make a film <laughs> out of that i think that would be interesting in terms of yeah. a companion piece i'd go to the side and pick a tv episode the final ever proper episode of captain scarlet and the mistrons attack <laughs> on cloud base where basically what happens is the Mistrons, who for anyone who hasn't seen Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons, uh, the Mistrons are kind of alien force who feel threatened by humanity uh, when they kind of in the first episode arrive on their home planet and by accident kind of destroy one of their cities. And so instantly they're like, right, that's it. Fuck you. And kind of put a campaign of terrorism basically to humanity for kind of 32 episodes. In the final episode, they basically insert a hallucination into one of the main characters' minds where the Mistrons finally launch their all-out attack on humanity. They decimate everything. Cloud Base, which is the hub of the kind of heroes of the piece, they absolutely destroy. All of the heroes of the story die. Everyone gets killed. Um, including Captain Scarlet. It was really like crazy. Captain Scarlet actually dies about halfway through the episode. And the whole idea of the show is Captain Scarlet is indestructible. So he'll die and then come back to life. Whereas this time he gets killed and because it's the mystery, he is killed stone dead. And there's a scene in the kind of surgery where Captain White, who is kind of the Nick Fury of Cowbase, turns around and goes like, the doctor says, Captain Scarlet's dead, sir. And he turns around and says, oh, great. How, how soon can we have him back on the bridge? And he's like, no, really dead, sir. You don't understand, Colonel. He's really dead. Permanent. Final. Absolutely dead. Dead? Captain Scarlet dead? And it's this thing of like, fuck, well, Captain Scarlet's dead. We're all fucked. And everyone does. And then when she's woken up, the Mistrons say, oh, this is basically our warning. For the future, we've decided that actually this war is is bad and we would prefer peace. So leave us alone and this won't happen. But otherwise, we're coming back, we're going to kill everyone. And that's the kind of ending of the show, essentially, the end message. So it's a similar thing where they're saying, like, right, you were the aggressors in the first place. Now we want peace. Let's just leave it at that. So there you go. Attack on cloud base. Uh, any final thoughts on this movie? Let's let's do star ratings because we always do those on the show. We're all members of Letterbox, the amazing uh, film database website. Uh, so we've held back our ratings on Letterbox, even though I've seen this film before. I haven't put my rewatch up. Matt, first time watch for you, I believe. Yeah, in my head, I swear I had seen it before, but watching it, I was like, no, I definitely haven't. It was the remake I saw. I hadn't watched the original beforehand. And yeah, I think it's really fantastic. I think it's got a lot more heart and energy to it than something like the Andromeda Strain, if we're comparing 
Robert Wise cerebral sci-fis. It's certainly, you know, shorter and punchier, so it's easier to digest. Uh, I think it looks great. I think it does, you know, genuinely has a timeless, uh, timeless and timely message. Um, fantastic classic B-movie score. And yeah, looks great as well. So it's a strong four for me. Four and a heart on the old letterbox. Amazing. Four stars. Paul? Yeah, I was have to go with that. Four stars for me too. It's interesting like how exposed I was to this film before I'd actually ever got into seeing it itself by just uh, my Star Wars Return of the Jedi figures were named Klaatun, Rada, Nikto. They're all Jabba the Hutt's henchmen. <laughs> so I had all those kind of planted early on. Like it's like, oh, these are cool names. But then I, like, then I think I got to know they were part of a, a whole sci-fi film. Then again, I saw Army of Darkness and these are the magic words that like uh, released the Book of the Dead to Ash. Yeah, and uh, so you know, I, I then finally—I was going to say—I think film. that's probably where I knew it yeah. from. Uh, and also, then in Independence Day, they have a clip from this movie. We're, we're in the trailer uh, of um, not, not the trailer of the film, but the, in, the trailer family uh, in the film have this going on in the background, and there's the line, you know, we created a race of robots. And so I was expecting a lot more robots in this movie when I finally got around to watching it. <laughs> <laughs> a race of robots. Yeah, it's funny like how this film has you know informed or permeated like sci-fi culture ever since. Like it is a bit of an iconic movie and despite you know my reservations about some of the date, more dated elements i think that you know what doesn't date is the message and that's what is you know and, and the key key themes of the movie are still relevant so it's well worth a watch chris uh yeah i was just looking back on my score because i couldn't remember and it turns out i gave it a three i thought i was a bit more generous than that but i'm generally quite tight <laughs> like some people throw around the fours and fives like they're fucking diamonds yeah just i don't throw no fives around for <laughs> something to get a five it has to be perfect so to, to free sounds sounds like i'm damning it but free is a good score it's is the definitive right that led Klaatu to come here and we will warning for the future free is definitively good four is <laughs> great Five is okay. Perfection. What would be your most controversial perfection score? Like one that you kind of go, I, I, "This is for me. This is a perfect for me." Like, and you start have a hard time justifying. Yeah, more of a personal choice. Uh, I don't know. I've, I've I've only just recently started using that. Oh, I think just recently started um, giving five stars. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know if there's anything. I, I probably my my four and a half are probably the more controversial sort of. Like I put like Temple of Doom at four and a half or Mamma Mia. Or, what? Um, Mamma Mia! <laughs> oh, Mamma Mia is amazing. That wow. that that song about where they about they they had a fling in Paris or something like that. Oh, that I I come away in tears uh-huh. in tears. But sequel better, right? Oh no, the sequels. Uh, no, but you know. Well, oh, but so you don't like the sequel to Mamma Mia? Does anyone like the sequel? Yeah, I thought it was University Exception. The sequel was superior. Of Mamma Mia, <laughs> yeah, hundred percent, mate. If you talk about emotion, it's all about uh, Mamma Mia too. When Bronholm is singing uh, SOS, I think that's the first one. In that, no, oh, that's the first one. Stuff. First one. No, no, but I think I think doesn't he sing it again, but in a kind of um, <laughs> reprise, like, slow down in a more mournful way. So when you're near me, darling, can't you hear me? The love you gave me, nothing else can save me When you're gone, how can I 
even tried to go on when you're gone. Though I tried, how can I carry on? He sings a Abba song in mournful fashion. Oh, fine, the Abba song that Ron Hunt sings and insert it here. As for my star rating, this is a very loose uh, I would give it, uh, I think when I first watched it originally, I think it was a four. I think on second watch, I'll give it three and a half, a very strong three and a half. But I think, just, I think the message is extremely strong. It frustrates me and upsets me that despite this message being given in 1951, no one gave a shit and hasn't hasn't listened to that message. And yeah, like the middle section, I do think sometimes comes across like kind of PSA in some ways. But I do think it's, it's very strong um, overall and extremely influential. Well, um, that is the end of this episode, but we will be back. We will soon be doing our Picard Season 1 spoiler special very, very soon. Uh, Chris, can you tell us where we can find you online and your podcast? Uh, so the podcast is called Easy Riders Raging Podcasts. We're just entering our third series, which is just going to be on... 1950s films exclusively you can find us in all good podcast places like itunes and spotify that kind of thing and at twitter at errr podcast yeah it's a great podcast we've been on um with blue collar and godzilla and we shared a couple of guests as well i think we had nick disemblin on to talk about inner space and i think he's been on your podcast to talk chinatown hasn't he mm, well it was a great guest and i, I think i was helped get connected through yourself. So I was very grateful of that. Oh, no, absolute pleasure. It resulted in a great episode. So, yeah, and no, I'm really, really glad of that. Definitely go and check that out. You can uh, find all of what we're doing at Spotlight Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much, everyone. We shall see you soon and from the future. Goodbye. Your choice is simple. Join us and live in peace or pursue your present course and face obliteration. We shall be waiting for your answer. The decision rests with you.
Lots of skin. 